Has it ever happened to you where you have regretted words that you spoke to another person? <laughs> maybe, maybe something in anger that you might have said to a spouse or to a family member that you wish you could take back. We rarely regret kind words, edifying words. Uh, we sometimes regret words that we've not said. Most commonly, though, the words that we regret are harsh words, hard words. But then there are times when we know we must speak an honest, truthful word to someone that might be difficult for them to hear, might be difficult for them to bear. Hard words are rarely received with joy, even when they're meant to exhort. Even when they're necessary, they're rarely received with joy. Hard words can hurt the person to whom we speak, and we might feel at times a tension of regretting the way that our words make someone else feel. But at the same time, we might know that those words are necessary. They need to be said to the individual. It's certainly easier to leave people alone. Uh, it's difficult to confront, and it's difficult to be confronted. Uh, but at times we know that love requires reproof and warning. The book of Hebrews has served for us as an excellent example of this balance between the comforting words of encouragement that lie right next to the hardest of warnings. And I believe the author knows this. He, he's doing this intentionally. He knows how difficult some of his hard words are to bear. So he packs it with encouragement and promises and comfort. And we're going to look at this today, both types of exhortation, by going through this epistle for the last time. Today we'll take our final fly back over uh, the book of Hebrews, looking at it. This is our last week in Hebrews together. Uh, when we started this book, we were in the midst of some very troubled times in our, in our world. Uh, we, all, we still are, but, but uh, this was actually began during the time of the, the COVID lockdown. So here we are, years later, finally concluding the book with the 54th sermon. One last time, the book of Hebrews, chapter 13, our anonymous author concludes the epistle with these words in verses 22 through 25. Hebrews 13, 22. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. For I have written to you briefly, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send their greetings. Grace be with all of you. Here in these final words, in verse 22, the author says, I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. He, he realizes that the words of this letter might be difficult for the people to bear. And we're going to spend most of our time this afternoon looking at that verse 22, drawing from the word exhortation. Bear with my word of exhortation. And then at the end, we'll consider the greeting in verses 23 and 24 and the church's need for grace. 
Now, there's some significant discussion about the book of Hebrews in the literature as to whether or not it is an epistle or a letter or a sermon. Commentators vary in their opinions. But as I hope to show you, I think a case can be made for it being both. That is, that we consider the book of Hebrews as an epistle that was meant to be read aloud in one seating, read aloud to the church in place of a sermon. The fact that it's an epistle is very clear at the end of the letter. The last eight verses have the typical components of a New Testament epistle, a benediction, a greeting, an appeal for prayer. We saw the appeal for prayer uh, in verses 18 and 19, that he would, the people would pray, that the author would come and visit them soon. Then the beautiful benediction we saw last time in verses 20 and 21, it says, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, when we come to verse 22, we see a final appeal. Look at verse 22 again. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation. I appeal to you. This is the, going to be the first point of the sermon and where I'll spend most of my time today. Bear with my brief word of exhortation. He appeals to them, better urges them. It is a word that is quite common. Parakaleo in the New Testament it appears 15 times and the author of Hebrews uses it now for the third time to emphasize urgency. I urge you, brethren. I urge you, and he calls them brothers, Adolphos. He warmly expresses a closeness with these individuals. He has a relationship with these believers. He, and he urges them now, bear with my word of exhortation. What exhortation is he talking about? Well, remember the main point of the letter of Hebrews. This is what motivated the writer to write the book. This was his concern. What is it? That he was concerned that the people, the Jewish believers, were returning to the law, were drifting away from the truth of Christ. And he repeats this several times in the epistle, as we're going to see. He loved these believers enough to tell them the truth. He did not want to risk leaving them to their own devices, so he exhorts them of their danger. He warns them. And here at the conclusion, he urges them, heed the words, heed my exhortation, bear with my exhortation, bear with that which is contained in this epistle, receive it with an open heart. Now he describes this discourse, which is the entire epistle in verse 22, with two interesting interesting terms. He calls it first a word of exhortation, and then he calls it brief, literally a few words. He's referring to the epistle in its entirety, a few words. Now, that's kind of unusual because Hebrews could not really be considered a brief letter. The epistle has nearly 5,000 words, and as far as epistles go in the New Testament, it's only eclipsed by Paul's epistle to the Romans and 1 Corinthians. All the other epistles are shorter. So, as an epistle, it could hardly be described as a few words. We do know, though, the author is attempting to be brief. On two occasions, in chapter 5, verse 11, and in chapter 9, verse 5, 
he expresses how he has much to say, and he could say much more. So he's trying to keep it brief. By New Testament standards, the book of Hebrews as a sermon would not be very long. And I say by New Testament standards, because if we look, for example, at um, Paul's sermon in Acts chapter 20, verses 7 and 9, where Paul is preaching past midnight. Remember, that was the time when it was so lengthy that it actually reports that there was a young man in the congregation who was seated up in the third balcony and he fell asleep and actually fell out the balcony and they actually he actually died and they raised him. Uh, well, that's an example of, an, of, a, of a New Testament sermon, a sermon in the days of, of the Bible. So by comparison, we could say that the book of Hebrews, which could be read in just under an hour, would be a brief sermon. Not by modern standards. Consider modern standards. Today, the average sermon length has now, which has been decreasing over the last 25 years, is now down to 37 minutes. So not brief by today's standards, brief by New Testament sermon standards. The author does desire to keep things as brief as possible. I, I, I know that this is like um, every week, whether you believe this or not, it's true, my final step in, in sermon preparation is to go through the sermon and cut back on things that I feel are unnecessary or extraneous. Near the end of the week, I'll, I'll have the sermon done and I'll just try to cut back on anything that I feel unnecessary. I don't want to take away from the power of the main points with a whole lot of other stuff. And I know it's hard for you to believe that I do that, but I do that and still end up around 50 to 55 minutes. Imagine if I didn't do that. And by the way, I'll just say I, I, I am amazed at your attention spans. It's incredible. In a world where everything is moving so quickly, uh, the, the, the drawing power of, of media and screens, you know, and lights, you know, here you are for almost an hour giving your attention to what basically is, is a talking head. No pictures, no movies, no funky lights in the background to keep you occupied. That's a testimony, brothers and sisters, of your love for the Word of God. And I praise God for that. That said, there is a good and right regard that a preacher ought to have toward his listeners to not exasperate them. I should not presume upon your great attention span and produce lengthy sermons with unnecessary information exasperating you. Now, why do I do this? Why do I compare the length of Hebrews to a sermon length? Well, the author calls his word of exhortation brief. And he calls it, specifically, an exhortation, parakaleo, a word associated with the spoken word prepared for oral delivery, meaning that the author of Hebrews considered his epistle to be a sermon. He, he seems to want to convey, at the very least, the impression that he's present with his audience as this is being read in the assembly. In verse 22, he says, he calls his letter Logutes Paracleseos, a word of exhortation. And that Greek word for exhortation includes the very broad ideas of warning and reproof to encouragement and comfort. Warning and reproof all the way to encouragement and comfort. 
Isn't that what Hebrews has been for us? He, he tells them, bear with my word of exhortation. Endure it. Receive it with patience. And I believe he's saying this at the end now because he realizes the weight of which of what he's, he has written. So he exhorts them. Don't be discouraged with these words. Patiently receive these words. In particular, the hard words. He loves the people. And at times, in order to speak lovingly, it requires we speak truthfully. And if we speak truthfully, at times the truth could sting. Listen, we live in an age that is everything against this. In an age where any negative word or perceived negative word will have you canceled. Hard words are rarely heard any longer in our culture. We live in an age that negative words are, are, are being canceled. People are breaking down because they're not affirmed and comforted. What do we call them? Snowflakes, right? Hard words rarely heard anymore. In two studies from 2019, researchers examined 218, two, two studies, 218 and 376 university students' reactions to excerpts written about their generation, about the millennials. They read these articles and then they gave their input. This is young adults aged 18 to 25. They found that the students reacted negatively to their age group, to their generation, being called narcissistic or entitled. And they reacted with a similar degree of negativity to other undesirable labels, such as they're oversensitive. They were being oversensitive about being called oversensitive. In our day, what is or is not considered appropriate has changed. The media, news, comedy even, quite different from past generations. People are so easily offended. I was reading that the average grade of a high school student, which was once C, by the way, C is average. It means fair. It means you did a Average job, you're average. Well, today, the average grade of a high school student is an A, not because the academics are any better, but because it's perceived that students today can't deal with a C any longer. They don't like being called average. And such is our culture. Everyone gets a trophy. But culture aside, any true Christian in any age will appreciate the benefit of a proper balance between affirmation and assurance and comfort on the one hand and warnings and reproof and rebuke on the other. Both are the means that God uses to sanctify and to save his people. We recognize that as believers, right? We recognize God woke us up by warning us. He took us out of our slumber by blowing the trumpet. He shook us up out of our complacency. He woke us up out of our laziness by warning us. But sadly, we find a trend in preaching today in many evangelical churches of our day where it has become weak, where there is a bending to the cultural mandate of oversensitivity. How many preachers in our day are talking about people calling upon the rocks to fall on them so that they might perish because they're in such fear? How, how many preachers today would identify Jesus, as Peter did, as the one whom you crucified, even with pointing a finger? 
which I believe he probably did on Pentecost. The one whom you crucified. Today's preacher has replaced the sharp, booming, exhortive you with the mild, easy to accept we. We crucified him with a soft tone and no finger. Preaching has been replaced in our age with conversations. There's no more imperatives. There are only suggestions and caveats. We want to apologize for an outdated God. Imagine Pete preaching 1 Timothy 2 in our day, which talks about the exclusion of women from the pastorate. And then following it up, as I've heard, with words like, now, I don't understand why God made this rule, because I personally think uh, women would make great pastors. After all, they make great leaders in the civil and corporate arenas. And we just have to assume that God knew what he was doing when he inspired that chauvinistic, patriarchal Apostle Paul to write that. Let's have a conversation about it, shall we? This is the prevailing mode of preaching in our day. There is no imperative in preaching any longer, nothing offensive. There's no power. There's no searching of the soul. The Lord Jesus, with the flaming sword coming out of his mouth, has been completely eclipsed with the gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Booming calls to repent or perish have been replaced with hell. Friends, let's talk about Jesus today, shall we? However, on the other hand, we need to be aware of over-adjusting. Some preachers do realize the present barometer of our culture, and they overcorrect to preach only hard sermons with little comfort. Some Christians love that, believe it or not. But brethren, harshness is not a gift of the Spirit. Gentleness is a gift of the Spirit. There's no virtue in merely being harsh. And in preaching, we need balance. Jonathan Edwards famously preached, we all know his sermon, right? Sinners in the hands of an angry God. But imagine if he preached that every week. His congregation would be exasperated. He preached regularly sermons like, Heaven, a world of love. The Puritans gave us works like the fearful expectation of judgment. And they also gave us works like the bruised reed. The point being, brothers and sisters, is that we need both. We need both the powerful imperative and the glorious indicative upon which that imperative is grounded. Being harsh does not correct for preaching that is soft on sin in our culture. The answer is, preach as Christ preached. And it's funny, everyone thinks they are doing that. And they'll always point, well, Jesus turned the tables, didn't he? Or on the other side, but Jesus said, let all those who are are, are labor and are heavy laden come to me. Preach like Christ. A preacher who was always hard or always mild is not preaching like Christ. They're only preaching one aspect of Christ's preaching ministry. I remember one one, uh, Sunday many years ago, uh, going to the old Times Square Church in Manhattan under Pastor David Wilkerson. If you don't know, Pastor Wilkerson had a reputation of being a hard preacher. He 
preached hard words. And I'm very thankful that the Lord used the preaching of that pulpit uh, to convict me at a time when I needed to be convicted with a hard word. But one Sunday that I was visiting, Wilkerson was preaching on the parable of the talents. And as he preached, he, he came to the point where the man gave the excuse for why he buried his one talent. What the man's excuse was, was, Master, I knew you to be a hard man. So basically, rather than risk losing my talent, I buried it, and here it is. I knew you to be a hard man. Well, Wilkerson was explaining how he was personally convicted by this, and he wondered whether his preaching was presenting Jesus as hard. And again, there were many fans of hard preaching. You didn't go to Times Square Church to have your ears tickled. There were many fans of, of some people just love harshness for the sake of harshness. But here he was being convicted of his harshness because he was painting Jesus to be a hard man. What we need, brethren, is not harshness, but a biblical balance in preaching. One that is not afraid to preach the sharp edges of truth with passion, but also equally unafraid to preach the gospel of love and forgiveness with the same passion. Just listen how God identifies himself in the law. This is God's description of himself. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation. Now, God is not afraid of his reputation. He is not afraid of being misunderstood as rather as overly gracious or overly judgmental. He simply states it the way it is. It's human beings that are polarized. It's human beings that worry about their reputation. I want to be that hard preacher. I, I want to offend everyone. Or I want to offend no one. We're so polarized. In the case of Hebrews, we have a hard word. We have a challenge. Now let me remind you of some of that. In case you, that was, here's our flyback over Hebrews now. I won't have you turn. I think it'll take too long. Just listen to the hard words. Listen to the rebukes. Listen to the challenges. Listen to the warnings. These are written to the church. They are for us. Chapter 2. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Chapter 3. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Chapter 4. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Chapter 5. 
about this, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Chapter 6. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted of the heavenly gift and have shared of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm, holding him up to contempt. Chapter 10. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains any sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved for those who trample underfoot the Son of God, and have profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Chapter 12. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loved, and he chastises every son whom he receives Strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one shall see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. And at that time, later on in the chapter, at that time his voice shook the earth, and now he has promised yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase yet once more indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is the things that have been made. Now I could go on, there are many more. One chapter of the book of Hebrews can melt 10,000 snowflakes. Hebrews is filled with these hard words. And the author, as he's closing the epistle, realizes the strong language of his exhortation. And he's concerned that he's discouraged his hearers. So he says, endure it. Endure it. Bear with my exhortation. Now, this does not mean that he regrets the exhortation. He doesn't regret the hard word. He hopes that it's the hard word that's going to encourage them to repent. However, he does seem, he does seem to have a concern that they would bear with it. The Apostle Paul had the same issue. Turn to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. The Apostle Paul felt this way that some of his hard words that he had to write to the church at Corinth would be taken in such a way, taken wrongly. In 2 Corinthians 7, it's believed that Paul is referring to some things that he wrote to the church in his first letter, what we call 1 Corinthians, where he's very forthright, 
very candid. He challenges them to repent of their factions, repent of their casual dealing with sin. They weren't dealing with sin in the church. They were allowing anyone to just come to the Lord's Supper, and, and people were dying for taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And he doesn't, he's trying to put a stop to that. And his hard words were necessary. They were a loving rebuke. And it led to their repentance. And you can sense this. Look at this tension that he has in 2 Corinthians 7, beginning in verse 8. He's writing, he says, he says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Now, I I sense this as a preacher and as a pastor. Sometimes you have to exercise some form of discipline in the church, or, or you have to warn, you have to preach hard words, whether it's judgment or it's exposing sin or it's rebuke or, or reproving sin. And, and I recognize this kind of sense of regretting but not regretting, Regret, regretting that you're grieved but not regretting the consequence and result of that, which is your repentance. I, I, I think anyone would say, they would rather encourage or comfort believers than rebuke and correct, right? I mean, it's a lot easier to be a Joel Osteen. I'm an encourager. I don't do those things. It's easy. That's why he, all these people flock to him. It's easier. But the scripture doesn't work that way. Preachers need to warn and rebuke and preach judgment as the text warrants. But at the same time, as we do that, we take into consideration we don't want people to be condemned. We don't want people to condemn themselves. We don't want people to take the words wrongly. And that leads to a temporary regret. And I think that's what the author of Hebrews is coming to at the end when he exhorts them, bear with my exhortation. And the book of Hebrews, if we consider the book of Hebrews as a sermon, it gives us an example of the composition of a sermon of what ought to compose a sermon today. Now, I've already shown you how Hebrews exhorts believers with hard words, endure discipline, resist sin, don't drift away from the faith. But Hebrews also provides us with the greatest words of comfort in all of Scripture, the greatest encouragements and assurance of the rest and hope that lie ahead for the believer. He he bases these on the promises of God. Let Let me share it again. Let's fly over one more time. Chapter 2, right after the warning, he says, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? He says this, he says, for it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the foundation, I'm sorry, founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have one source, That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Imagine that. He's introduced us in chapter 1 to this glorious son, this son of God who is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint, the perfect founder of salvation. And what does it say? He's not ashamed to call you brothers. Hallelujah. And that he will bring you to glory. He goes on to say, 
through death, that he would destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. He's a deliverer. He's a savior. Right after warning about not entering into his rest in chapter 3, he says this in chapter 4 at the beginning. He says, for we who have believed entered that rest. Amidst the warning of chapter 4, he concludes in verse 14 with the great, one of the greatest promises in all of Scripture. He's just warned them. And he says this in verse 14 of chapter 4. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. Chapter 6, we know Hebrews 6 is one of the hardest warnings against apostasy in all of Scripture. Right after he gives the warning, he says this. He says, though we speak in this way, what way? Though we speak with these hard words about warning, he says, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust as to overlook your work, and the love you have shown in his name in serving the saints as you still do. We desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. We remember chapter 6 as being the warning against apostasy, but the bulk of chapter 6 comforts the believer. It's encouraging words to the believer. It is in this chapter that we learn about the oath by which he swears. God swears by this irrevocable promise in his own name. We hear how we have a sure and steady anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus goes as our forerunner on our behalf. What a comforting truth to know that Jesus conquered death, entered heaven, he goes to the shores of heaven, and he anchors our soul there in the presence of God forever. How glorious. How glorious to learn that Jesus is our guarantor of a greater covenant. A covenant wherein it says God will be merciful toward our iniquities and will remember our sins no more. A greater covenant than the old, where he says those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance and that Christ is coming a second time for those who eagerly wait for him. Chapter 10, another big warning about falling away in verses 19 through 23. Chapter 10, it says this, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart, in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. On and on I could go on. Uh, Chapter 12, when he talks about the removing and shaking of all things, the things that shook the entire created order, 
He says there was an intention. There's a reason he shook the entire created order. And he says it's in order that the things that cannot be shaken would remain. Why? So that you and I, brothers and sisters in Christ, so that we would inherit a kingdom that cannot be shaken. So as a sermon, Hebrews shows us the kind of material that we ought to be hearing in our pulpits today. Both the encouragement and comfort based on what God has done for us in Christ, the indicatives, and the strong warning of judgment and the imperatives. They serve the same goal. They, they both are needed to save those who have ears to hear. The warnings may be spurned by those who are not saved, but the, war, the warnings will be embraced by those who have ears to hear. And there will be repentance. They serve the same goal, to save those with ears to hear. The preservation and the perseverance of the saints is dependent on encouragements and rebuke. We need both. So if we, as your pastors, neglect one or the other, we fail to preach the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God is designed to save you, to sanctify you. And there's a great danger in a church that neglects either aspects of this word exhortation. And your friend, today, you're in great danger if you cannot bear with an exhortation, whether that be a warning that shakes you, that you may not be a Christian, or whether it be a comforting, warm word. We have to ask God to give us grace, not to be conformed to the snowflakes of this world. We need to be able to bear with warnings that were designed for our salvation and growth. The scripture says, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. The way to be sure that you're not in that number among those is to endure strong exhortations. Bear with exhortations. Receive them. They're God's good gift to us. God and your pastors love you enough to appropriately warn you, praise God, because 95, at least, percent won't do that. If you're hearing this, and you're a preacher, and you're uncomfortable warning the flock, I understand that. But know that if you do not do so, you are failing to equip your sheep with one of the most essential means to save their souls. Do not allow our weak culture to dictate what you say so that you're unable to preach a strong word with the full biblical passion and power. It was the false teachers, remember, who were the ones who said, peace, peace, when there was no peace. Do not allow your fear of man to keep you from preaching the whole counsel of God, both promise and judgment. Peace and safety, yes, and sudden destruction for those who don't heed. 
Any preachers who might be listening, I pray that the Lord would lead us to teach and preach without yielding the authority that comes from God himself in preaching the word. God delegates preaching to the pastor to preach the word. We do not need to apologize when we exercise that authority. If you do cave into the pattern of this world by averting strong exhortations when they're necessary, what will happen is your church will be filled with goats. What are goats? False believers who can endure neither sound doctrine nor hard words. The word of God would charge us as pastors in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. That was my brief first point. Second point. I promise you... (laughs) This will be brief, really brief. Second point, greetings and grace. First greetings, verse 24. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send your greetings, send you greetings. Timothy, common name in the time. Most believe, though, this was the Timothy who was known, Paul's friend and the son in the ministry, and that those receiving this letter would be fully aware who Timothy was in the church as a whole, what he did, and that they would be generally encouraged that apparently Timothy was in prison and now he was being released from prison. And also encouraged that Timothy was going to be joining him, the author, if he was coming. If, if, if this release was soon, Timothy was going to be there visiting the church. Verse 24, he again mentions leaders. He says, greet your leaders. These are the same leaders that we've had, he's had in his mind throughout the chapter. In verse 7, in verse 17, these are the leaders of the congregation who, who he admonishes the congregation to honor and respect. And here he says, greet your leaders, showing that the letter is written to the congregation, not just the pastor's. The writer addresses the congregation directly. You, church, greet your leaders. And then also, greet all the saints, the hagius, the holy ones. He calls the brethren holy. An important theme in Hebrews, right? All the saints, those who God is sanctifying through the blood of Jesus, greet them. Remember, it was Hebrews that told us to pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So his church are filled with what? Saints, holy ones. And then finally, the greeting. He says, those who come from Italy send you greetings. Now, if indeed, as I believe that this is a letter written to Jewish believers in Rome, those who come from Italy could refer to those expats that uh, once lived in Italy, now were with the, with the uh, writer, the author, ministering with the author outside the country and sending their greetings back. These would be people they knew, their friends from the past. Finally, concludes the letter with a benediction. Grace be with you all. Very common benediction. Common in sermons as well, a benediction. You end it letters and sermons with a benediction. 
And grace be with you all was a typical closing, but here it has some special weight in Hebrews. Why? Because of the many exhortations in Hebrews. He wants to leave there them remembering that it is only by grace that you can carry out these exhortations. Grace is primary. It is only by grace that these or any believers have hope to enter God's rest. It is only by grace that believers will not fall away. It is only by grace that you can endure discipline or strive for holiness or resist sin or anything else that the letter admonishes. It is only by grace that you can be saved today. There are 131 uses of grace, the word grace in the ESV, 124 in the New Testament. Grace is often defined as undeserved favor, and that is one aspect of grace. Undeserved favor. Grace is the attribute that God, of God that incites him to give free gifts, undeserved gifts to sinners. We see this in Romans 11, verses 5 to 6. It says, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. For if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. The unmerited, undeserved favor that God has on sinners today. You cannot work for your salvation. You cannot work to earn grace. Today, you can come in here thinking that you're just about maybe good enough to go to heaven when you die. And you think that your eternity is dependent on it. If that's you, I would call upon you to think. Think about this in light of Scripture. If you think that you can live a good life and then go to heaven when you die, or maybe you're not so good now, but you say, i got plenty of time to make up for all the bad things I did. I would call you to turn of your unbiblical way of thinking and receive the free grace offered to you in the gospel, offered to all sinners. It is by the grace of God and grace alone that you are saved through faith. It is not dependent on your good works one iota. Scripture is clear. There is no other way to be saved but for you to receive the free gift of Christ's death and resurrection in your place. That is undeserved favor. That is God's gracious initiative. Grace, then, is also used in the New Testament to talk about power for living. 2 Corinthians 9.8 says, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. So as believers, even the good works that we do are by grace. By grace, God not only saves, but he sanctifies. Grace is the power or work of God that works in us to change us, to enable us to work, to serve, to, to suffer, to repent, or anything else. We are made holy only by grace. We grow in our faith only by grace. We saw it in verse 9. Look back to verse 9. It says that we are strengthened, how? By grace. Grace produces real, practical outcome in people's lives. And it's no wonder the author would want grace ringing in our ears as we close the book of Hebrews. He leaves us with this benediction of grace. 
I'll close by having you turn to one more text. Turn back to Hebrews chapter 4. A verse that we all know and we all love that I would like to have ringing in your ears as we close the book of Hebrews that we would understand it in terms of grace. Hebrews 4, first verse 16. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. What is God's throne characterized by? What is his rule, his presence characterized by? A throne of judgment? No. God has a quality and a character that has an inclination to be gracious to his people. He treats us better than we deserve. I love it when people, you ask someone, hey, how you doing? And their answer is, it's kind of, you know, uh, try it at this point, I guess, but better than I deserve. So true, right? We're, we're treated better than we deserve. That's the throne that we're coming to. We don't deserve it, but grace. This is where we petition God before the throne. This is where we pray. We're unworthy of that presence, but grace. And then he follows that right up in verse 16. He says that we may receive mercy and find grace. So you see, here's the other one. There's the unmerited part. And now here, what? Find grace to help in time of need. Talk about encouragement. Talk about comfort. This is incredibly encouraging, brothers and sisters, to know that God's grace is both his inclination, his heart, to treat us better than we deserve and to extend that inclination to work in us what is pleasing in his sight. Grace to help in time of need. Walk by grace, brothers and sisters. Live by grace. Pray for grace. God is faithful to complete the work that he's begun in you. Rest in him, for you have found Jesus Christ, the beloved Son, in whom you too are favored. Not because you're good, but because of the perfect blood of the Son of God, the radiance of the glory of God, who sat down at his right hand, who is greater than Moses, greater than the angels, greater than the law, who became the perfect greater sacrifice, instituting a greater covenant. Only Christ can enable you to be a worshiper before the throne of grace. And this very same Son of God is not ashamed to call you brother, Sister, all by grace. And by the grace of the new covenant, he established in Christ's blood so that you could be free, forgiven, and at peace with God, one with God, having entered his rest in this life and forever. Amen.